Michael Beach. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. It's one of them days where I don't think it is humanly possible for me to get through every single sheet of paper that is in front of me. So that's just a little little heads up. But it's going to be a long show today. A lot of stuff to get to. We got Deval Patrick. Uh, if you don't know who he is, fear not, I will give you the breakdown. In fact, that's coming up in the first segment that we have. Then we have more Hillary speculation. A little news about Jank Uger that's making its rounds. Uh, Bernie Sanders took some shots at fragile billionaires, and uh, he was mocking them in a speech, which is absolutely glorious. Fox News is going into over-defend the rich mode um, for obvious reasons, because... You know, you have candidates now who are actually calling them out. I got an update on the situation in Bolivia, which is a mess. And I have um, the left successfully beating back an attempt to water down a minimum wage increase in New Jersey. So uh, all over the map today, uh, all that and much, much more. So without further ado, let's get started. And we're going to do that with a little man by the name of Duval Patrick. Um, Do I have a video for this one? The answer is new. All right, let's do it. So it appears like the establishment is panicking, and now they might be throwing their hopes and their money behind one Deval Patrick. Now, this is Deval Patrick. If you don't know who he is, fear not, I will update you. So um, Jeff Zeleny tweeted the following. This guy is from CNN. New former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick is telling friends and allies in phone calls today that he has made a decision to run for the Democratic nomination for president. Two people familiar with the matter tell CNN and is poised to make it official by Friday or sooner. So um, there's your answer. He was the governor of Massachusetts, and he's been a longtime um, Democratic establishment insider. And um, I want to give you just a few little facts about his record and about who he is so we can, you know, make up our mind at this very early date. Now, again, keep in mind the whole reason why he's running is obviously personal ambition is one thing, and I'm sure that's a big part of it. But an even bigger part of it is, no, you don't get it. The establishment is panicking. And they're now realizing, kind of like the Republican establishment realized in late 2016, late in the race in 2016, they were like, oh, oh, it looks like Trump might actually win this thing. Because if you remember, and it was glorious to watch all this unfold, but they threw everything they had at him. At first it was like, okay, people, we have Jeb Bush running. Aren't you excited for another Bush? Isn't he so charismatic? Isn't he such an accomplished politician? So they threw Bush out there. That didn't work at all. (laughs) Even with all the media chatter and speculation pumping him him up and acting like he's great, he became irrelevant rather quickly. Um, Then they were like, okay, maybe Rubio, Marco Rubio. You like Marco Rubio? He's young. He's a young guy. His last name is Rubio. Dare we say he's a person of color? They tried to throw Rubio out there. 
That didn't work very well either. <laughs> Trump destroyed him. They even went to John Kasich as another option, like, oh, yeah, no, ser very serious Republican, you know, all about the deficit. Did he do it? Maybe he did a good job as governor. Do you like that? Uh, that didn't work. Uh, in fact, I, my, the funniest, one of the funniest parts of the campaign was um, John Kasich bragging after he got, like, second place in a primary or third place. And everybody was like, what are you doing? And the media was like, oh, yeah, oh, serious candidate. He didn't win, but he was close to maybe winning one contest. So him, maybe. And then it even got to the point where they were like, Ted Cruz, yes, Ted Cruz, we'll take him over Trump. Please just don't pick Trump. And then what happened? We all know Donald Trump destroyed Ted Cruz as well. Um, so now the Democratic Party's in a similar situation. They're trying, man. They got, you know, Howard Schultz was threatening the independent run. You got Tim Ryan. You got John Delaney. You got Amy Klobuchar. You got Mayor Pete. You got all these centrists. Biden, who now the establishment has decided he ain't going to last. In some polls, he's still leading. But the establishment has decided mm, it doesn't look good for Biden. So they're panicking. And they need somebody. And <laughs> they're flinging mud against the wall and hoping something sticks. And now they got Deval Patrick. And they think, oh, this guy's good. He's a minority, a person of color. They had Kamala, but Kamala, of course, imploded in a legendary fashion. She's now at 1% in some polls in the early states. Hilarious. Um, but now they're going with Deval Patrick. And they want to try to, to make him, you know, the, uh, the, the flavor of the month. And it's not going to work. <laughs> First of all, even, like, I get it, our system is wild and crazy, uh, but this is a super late entrance into the race. I mean, it just is. Michael Bloomberg, Deval Patrick, this late. Like, no, everything is kind of solidified, and we have so many candidates running. So, you know, what do you, what do you think? You're going to appear out of nowhere and all of a sudden skyrocket in some polls in you know, Iowa or New Hampshire? No way. You don't even have the name recognition yet. I mean, the media loves you, and they'll try to pump you up, but you probably no ground game, all that stuff. But even more important, his record is abysmal. So let me walk you through some of that. Um, as governor of Massachusetts, he secured a billion dollars in tax breaks and subsidies for pharmaceutical and biotech companies. So, I mean, you want to talk about just the epitome of a corporate Democrat. There you go. Um, he also increased the sales tax by a billion dollars. Now, I need, I need you guys to understand something. There's this caricature, this stereotype of Democrats is like, oh, they want to tax and spend, tax and spend lefty. That's what you are. And it's like, well, no, I've said on this show, and I'll continue to say it, I've, I don't think I've ever met a middle class tax increase that I like. Now, don't get me wrong, when it comes to like Medicare for all, since you're eliminating the private tax, which is premiums, co-pays, deductibles, and that's more, and you're raising public taxes, but it's less, that's a middle-class tax increase that makes sense, but it's because the net cost for a middle-class family goes down, so they save money. But, like, you know, any kind of cost that is a – or any kind of tax that's legitimately regressive and impacts working people more than the rich, I'm not a fan of. Well, Deval Patrick is, and that's exactly what this is when he increased the sales tax by a billion dollars. So he's kind of feeding into that, you know, the stereotype, the caricature of 
Democrats and people on the left is like, all they want to do is tax you and take your hard-earned money. And Well, when you're increasing the sales tax by a billion dollars, that is an issue. But now here are the most important point, his record in the private sector. So um, after leaving the government, you know where he accepted a job? You're going to love this one. Bain Capital. Now that might sound familiar to some of you, and the reason it does is because that's Mitt Romney's vulture capitalist company, where he was caught on, uh, on camera, where he, I don't think he even knew a camera was on, where he says, yeah, we harvest companies and then like sell them for profit. So th- this is like the, you know, the blood-sucking vulture capitalist that everybody hates. He went to go work for Bain Capital, that company. Um, and then also, he worked for AmeriQuest. AmeriQuest. And his record with AmeriQuest is disastrous. AmeriQuest is one of these companies that was heavy into the subprime mortgage loans, which, of course, led to the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. And Deval Patrick was viewed as like the fixer for corporate America. So if there was ever instances with some companies of their allegations of racial bias, he swoops in, he tries to help them save their reputation, they pay him a tremendous amount of money. Um, You know, with AmeriQuest, this was, they were predatory in targeting families of color. And Deval Patrick was on the side of the predatory guys. So he likes to paint his picture as like a rags-to-riches story or tell his story like it's a rags-to-riches story. Um, But no, it's really like a perfect example of a dude selling out to the establishment and becoming part of the worst aspects of corporate America. That's Deval Patrick. Now, if he really thinks he's going to hop in the race, and have a chance in a populist anti-establishment era, good luck to you. They're all going to embarrass themselves, man. I mean, they already are. The only one who's, like, inexplicably making a run is Mayor Pete. And Mayor Pete's been in this race for such a long time. Um, But, I mean, this is, you have, like, 12 people representing the same terrible corporate centrist ideology, and what, you think it's, like, you think this is, uh, I will come and save the country from the scourge of the eventual nominee, Bernie Sanders. Not going to happen, man. Now, apparently the Obama team has spoken to Deval Patrick. They're buddies, and, you know, he, uh, he was saying, hey, good luck to you. So they're getting desperate. But as soon as his, you know, his record gets under the microscope a little bit, as I just gave you some of right now, people are going to go, ooh. I don't like that, and they're right to not like that, because we're, it's, we're done with the, you know, pick a standard politician who goes along to get along. I don't want somebody who's part of the club, you know, and if you think about it, that's one of the reasons why Andrew Yang is doing so well. Now, I disagree with Andrew Yang on plenty of stuff, and I've gone over that on this show many times, but there's a reason why he's way outperforming what any establishment bobblehead thought, what any mainstream media bobblehead thought, is because he gets to go out there and say, I'm an outsider. I'm a legitimate outsider. I had nothing to do with, do with the swamp. Now I want to go in there and try to fix stuff. So that gives you a lot of credibility in today's day and age. Better that than saying, oh, I was a congressperson or, oh, I was a governor or whatever it might be. But, you know, you got a lot of dirt on you because people see the dirt now from a mile away and they go, oh, so you're a sellout. So you're part of the problem. 
and that's true in the case of Deval Patrick. So anyway, he's hopping in. It's hilarious. His ego got the better of him, but the establishment wants it. But I don't think he'll go very far. All right, next. All right, here we go, baby. So we have more Hillary speculation and chatter going on. This is unfortunate. Never say never, Hillary Clinton says. Many, many, many people are pressuring her to throw her hat into the 2020 ring. Oh, boy. Former Democratic nominee and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has kept the door open for the possibility of a future presidential run. Well, you know, I never say never, she told BBC Five Radio on Tuesday in response to whether or not she was considering a 2020 bid. I will certainly tell you I'm under enormous pressure from many, many, many people to think about it, she responded. But as of this moment, sitting here in the studio talking to you, that is absolutely not my plan. Despite the uncertainty surrounding a future campaign, Clinton has recently returned to the spotlight taking jabs at current 2020 Democrats and their policies. Now, I'll give you one guess (laughs) which wing of the party she decided to go after. We know what wing of the party. She's going after the left. And, of course, her comments in regards to policy are like, well, you know, Medicare for all and free college, that's that's not something that's attainable. You know, every time she talks, she reminds you, how and why she lost to a reality show buffoon <laughs> is because she like ultimately she has a nihilistic vision of like we can't fix anything ever and you know basically give up trying so yeah of course that message is going to lose it's a defeatist message nobody you know is excited to go out and vote for no change vote for the status quo so in a in a weird way even though Every time she goes in public, she tries to blame everybody else but her. She actually further verifies and proves that it wasn't, it wasn't anything else. It was her. I mean, other things impacted the election, but she was the main reason why she lost. She could have overcame all the things that were thrown her way pretty easily because she had a very beatable opponent, but she didn't do it because she, does she doesn't have that politician's, that natural politician's instinct. She doesn't know how to come across as um, genuine and trying to fix problems. And it's because she's not. It's because she wanted to be president for her own ego. So, man, it's so bad. I get PTSD every time I think of what happened in 2016, and I get it every time I see another article with Hillary Clinton. Um, So, yeah, she comes out in the public to, you know, berate politicians pushing for Medicare for all and free college. And now she's pretending and there's no doubt about it. There's no ambiguity. I'm not stuttering here. She is pretending like people are asking her to get into the race. Now, nobody's asking her to get into the race now. Nobody, 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 not even her beloved establishment. And they do love her. She is like part of the club. She's one of the founding members of the club. But even they are not like, Hillary, we need you to run. You don't get a mulligan against Trump. You're not going to get a mulligan. And 
you were uniquely weak against them. So what are you going to do now? We covered a story a while ago when more, when there was more coverage of this, and um, it said that she was considering like pretending she's a totally new person and running like trying to run to the left, trying to embrace 1990s style Hillary Clinton where she was further left. And when she wasn't, like, beaten down by Washington, then she didn't capitulate to Washington and just become a total corporate sellout. Um, so that would mean, you know, oh, yeah, like, she's going to run on single payer and all this stuff. I mean, listen, at this point, everybody knows it would be, um, it would be a strategy. So you, she wouldn't be able to do that. She wouldn't be able to get away with it because there are people who are in the race, obviously, who are more believable, who are actually repping that ideology. So what do you have to offer? You have nothing to offer. It's clear that whatever the speculation was then, it's different now because she hasn't been going out into the public and saying, yeah, Medicare for all is great. No, it's been going out to the public and saying the opposite. But I really was amused by the, um, I will certainly tell you, I'm under enormous pressure from many, many, many people to think about it. You want to know what her approval rating is? I'm not kidding about this. Her approval rating has gone down since losing that race. Just so you know, that's unprecedented. Usually, if you lose an election and you go away for two years, three years, your approval rating bounces back up. Because it actually is true, especially in the world of politics, that absence makes the heart grow fonder. And I often said about Hillary, and even with Biden, the idea of a Hillary presidency back in 2014, let's say, the idea of a Biden presidency when he went away for an extended period of time. People go, oh, yeah, no, sure, sure, yeah. The, you know, I remember they were they, they played some role, Hillary Secretary of State, obviously. You know, Biden, oh, the, yeah, sure, the vice president. And the idea of it is better than the reality of it. And when you see them on the campaign trail, you hear them, and they have to make their case, their poll numbers start going down. So for Hillary, it's really unprecedented. Like Mitt Romney, when he went away, you know, fast forward to 2014, 2015, his polls bounced back. Um, George W. Bush, I mean, he left office with like a 20-something percent approval rating, just historically abysmal. But fast forward four years, five years, six years, and obviously he's been out of office since 2008, so we're a long way past 2008 now, but... Now his approval rating is like double what it was because, again, absence makes the heart grow fonder. People just forget what you did. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing or that should be the case. People should evaluate based on actual policies and their record, um, but they don't do that, and it is more of a feelings thing. So with Hillary, she loses the election. Donald Trump is an abysmal, disastrous president, but fast forward to today, she's less popular than she was even when she lost. She has a 36% approval rating. On what planet do you think, you know, a lot of people are telling me, this, in a weird way, this sounds like Trump. You know, many, many people, some of, the most, some of the most brilliant people, some of the best people you've ever seen, many, many, many people are asking me to run again. I'm under enormous pressure, tremendous pressure to run again. No, you're not. Nobody's saying that. You're in your own head. Please, for the love of God, go away. Because it's not just that Hillary has to go away. It's that the entire ideology she represents has to go away, because that ideology is the death of the, of the Democratic Party. It's neoliberal centrist corporatism. And 
you have to understand the history of this. It's post-Ronald Reagan when, when uh, Bill Clinton, her husband, won in 1992. He ran as a new Democrat. He ran as somebody who triangulates is what it's called, where he goes, I'm above the fray. I'm not like these lefties. I'm not like these righties. Um, you know, I'm, a, I'm an above the fray guy who evaluates stuff on a case-by-case basis. I'm so reasonable. And at the time, you could argue that it was a politically intelligent move in terms of the raw politics of it and strategy of it. But in today's day and age, after George W. Bush, all bets were off. That neoliberal centrism, gone. That's not the ideology that people were yearning for in the country. You had a hardcore neoconservative in office who got us into countless wars, cut taxes for the rich, deregulated like there's no tomorrow, crashed the economy. So people were looking for a new FDR. And some people thought that's what they were getting with Obama. That's not what we got. He governed more like Bill Clinton. He governed more like a centrist. But they're still running on that 1990s model as if like that's the only option that's on the table if you're a Democratic politician. That's not true. There's also the option of going back to your roots, going back to FDR-style politics, going back to unapologetic social democracy. We covered on the show the other day, Jimmy Carter ran on a, a single-payer health care system. JFK ran on a single-payer health care system. All these different – there's a rich legacy, a rich history of Democratic politicians being unapologetic social democrats. And, you know, Hillary comes along and Bill comes along and this new centrist cult comes along and they, do, they will not let go of power. And the reason they still have power and can maintain power, even though they don't have the numbers behind them because the people aren't with them, is because of all the corporate money, because of all the corruption, because they are really, really, really well-funded because their ideology is very kind to corporations. So corporations want them to be the dominant wing of the Democratic Party, but their time's up. Their time's up, which is why now the establishment's panicking. They're realizing, oh, my God, it could be Bernie Sanders. A lot of them also think, oh, my God, it could be Elizabeth Warren. I think it's likely to be either Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren that gets the nomination. So, and obviously they hate Bernie more than Warren. Don't get, don't get it twisted here. But they'd still rather have a Mayor Pete or a Klobuchar than a Warren. There's no doubt about that. So they realize, oh, my God, and now they're trying to throw everything they got at them in the same way that the Republican establishment tried to do that to Trump. But it's so funny because you see how much of a paper tiger they are, especially with stories like this. Hillary's like, oh, many, many people want me to run. Nobody, nobody wants you to run. Nobody wants you to run. Nobody. There's nobody. No, there's nobody. But she has to, like, she has to puff up her own ego because nobody else will. Nobody else is going to. So here we are. Um, and having said all that, if she jumps in the race that helps Bernie – in the same way that Michael Bloomberg jumping in helps Bernie, in the same way that Deval Patrick jumping in helps Bernie. So, Hillary, go right ahead. Because the easier you make that path for America's dad, Bernard Sanders, the more I'm for it. Okay. So a story came out last night, which is quite a story if I don't say so myself. There are now multiple outlets reporting that Cenk Uger of the Young Turks is going to run for Congress. He's going to run for Congress. Namely, and I'll show you the headline here from Newsweek, Cenk Uger of the Young Turks files to run for, Cong- for Congresswoman K- 
Katie Hill's seat one day after endorsing Sanders. So the Katie Hill story is an interesting story, and in many ways like a really sad, heartbreaking story, is that she was kind of outed by right-wing trolls, is she was into some kinky sex stuff, and there were pictures of her, and uh, they were trying to say, oh, she has a Nazi tattoo, but I'm pretty sure that that tattoo has more than one meaning, and it's not. It was like an iron cross, which, I mean, sure, the Nazis use that, but also, it, I'm sure there's other uses for that, because I don't think Katie Hill's a Nazi. Call me crazy. But anyway, I digress. They outed her sex stuff, and then, of course, she was thrown directly under the bus by the Democratic leadership, because, of course, she was, and the Democratic leadership is terrible, as you all know, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, all of them. They're, I mean, they're milk toast centrist corporatists and they apologize for their own shadow and um i can't say enough negative stuff about them but anyway she's gone there's going to be a special election george papadopoulos is thinking of running on the republican side this is interesting because it's a swing district it's a swing district okay and jank uger took a look at this and said hmm maybe and now the reports are He's decided, yes. Now, is it verified from him? Not yet, because he tweeted no comment. So, who knows? Will he talk about it today? Will he talk about it tomorrow? I don't know. We'll see. But, this would be, in my opinion, awesome. Now, there's no such thing as, like, a a super easy election to win. I guess if you're an incumbent and you're unopposed, that is incredibly easy. But he's not an incumbent, and he's not unopposed. And there are plenty of people running for this seat, including some establishment Democrats who the party will throw their weight behind. But I want you to stop for a second and reflect on what it would be like to have Jank Uger in Congress. Even if, and it's interesting, because even people on the left who disagree with him, and make no mistake about it, he knows it, I know it, I have massive disagreements with him. Him and I went back and forth on Russiagate a thousand times, and I could name like seven other issues where him and I, you know, could go back and forth for hours. But if he were in Congress, that's a game changer. Now, why? Why is that the case? This little thing called the Overton window. The Overton window is the spectrum of debate that's considered reasonable from the powers that be. It's the spectrum of debate that the media says, oh, this is as far left as you can go, and this is as far right as you can go. And Cenk Uger in Congress would take that Overton window and drag it to the left. In many ways, even though he would be just a congressman and not a senator, he could set the national discourse and set the national dialogue because he could stake out that true left-wing position, and then, of course, he'd have AOC, Ilhan Omar, um, Rashida Tlaib, Ro Khanna, Pramila Jayapal, Mark Pocan. He can, you know, plant that flag and give them the backup that they need and give them the reinforcement that they need. Because it ain't easy being an actual lefty in Washington, D.C. It's not easy at all. You're gaslit at every turn from the leadership of the party. You know, people on the right despise you, except in rare instances where somebody like Ro Khanna can work together with some libertarian-leaning Republicans on war stuff, for example, and maybe drug war stuff. But it's a lonely place, man. And that's also why Bernie Sanders' career has been 
you know, particularly amazing, and he has so much integrity because all these years he never sold out. He never bent. He always stayed true to his principles, and he always fought for the policy positions that he believed in, he believed in no matter how much other people in D.C. told him you're crazy. But imagine having reinforcements there like Cenk Uger because he wouldn't bend on Medicare for all. He wouldn't bend on free college. He wouldn't bend on a living wage. He wouldn't bend on ending the wars. Now, again, I might have disagreements with him on Russiagate. I might have some disagreements with him on impeachment that we could argue over. But all that stuff, that's just disagreements as a matter of opinion and as a matter of him being a a political commentator and me being a political commentator. That doesn't manifest in any way, shape, or form in policy. What is Jenky? We're going to try to, I don't know, pass a bill that's war with Russia? No. <laughs> is Jenky going to try to, I mean, I guess he'd be all in on impeachment and um, he would be more than happy to go along with everybody in D.C. on that one. And I do think that distracts from the more substantive policy issues, which we should be focusing on. But that's really a small price to pay because Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is already doing that, and Ilhan Omar is already doing that, and there's not a, at this point there's not a single lefty in Congress, except maybe Tulsi Gabbard a little bit, who's like, oh, I don't know about all this. This is, might backfire. And also, you know, now that we have impeachment going on, Warren and Bernie are going to have to be at the impeachment hearing, and that could last for weeks at the height of the freaking campaign. So that could be a massive debacle. But anyway, I digress from that. The fact of the matter is, on actual policy, him and I are really, really, really in agreement. I mean, him and I probably agree 95% in policy and have 5% disagreement. So to have somebody, and here's the most important point, guys, somebody who understands the value in and the virtue of raw aggression, somebody who understands that in politics, a good defense is a good offense. He would be one of the only people on the left who really gets that. And when you get that, you set the narrative. So I think it would be wonderful if he was in Congress. I do. I think it would be absolutely wonderful. And the only thing that we would have to look out for, and I mean this, man, I think the media is going to treat him just as bad or worse than they treat Trump. Because, and you know this, you guys know this for sure. The media does not like populist left people. They don't like them. They don't like anti-establishment, anti-corruption, strong lefties. They don't like them. And I think the clause would immediately come out for Jank. I think that they, you know, they hang on his every word and try to portray it in a negative way. And I think they'll go they'll write to the old playbook of go to the old blogs that he wrote when he was in Miami and you know, oh my God, he said all these politically incorrect things. And, and the point that I would make to people on the left is don't fall for the head fakes. It won't make you more pure. It won't make you leftier than now to, you know, uh, virtue signal and throw him under the bus for past comments. Um, if he were to run, we should immediately... all do a full court press and do our absolute best to get him elected. Because I think him in Congress would genuinely be a game changer in terms of the national dialogue 
in terms of having a powerful, strong Democratic Party that goes on the offense. And I think that even people on the left who might have massive disagreements with him can understand that and can value that and can see that it's a, it would be a giant, giant victory. So all I can say is I hope he runs. I hope he wins. But get ready for a, a long, tough fight because I do think the media is going to viciously go after him. But thankfully, he's somebody who, in a very similar way to Trump, by the way, knows how to make his own case knows how to always be his own best friend, knows how to always say, no, you're wrong, and I'm going to tell you what the right thing is. So imagine Jank Uger runs for Congress and wins. Oh, oh, that'd be so great. That would be awesome. So anyway, I guess we'll get a final word soon because he's got to comment on it at some point. But uh, we all sit here with, uh, you know, holding our breath with our fingers crossed. I certainly hope he does it, and um, I guess we'll see very soon. Okay. So I want to show you here a really, really interesting poll, which, um, you know, highlights a narrative that I think I was onto before any, almost any other commentator in the game. So this is a, an economist YouGov poll about the Democratic primary, and take a look at the results. This is who's getting more of the 2016 Trump voters the former Trump voters who plan now to vote in the Democratic establishment. Who's getting more of those voters? Well, would you look at that? Tulsi Gabbard, 21%, number one. Bernie, 15%, number two. Yang, 13%, number three. And then we get a big drop-off, and we get uh, Steyer, Steyer, 7%, Biden, 6 Castro, 6 Bennett, 6 I can't believe Bennett has 6 Delaney, 4 That's got to all be in Bennett's state. Delaney, four. What? Warren, three. Delaney is beating Warren. Goodness gracious. Uh, Buttigieg, three. Klobuchar, three. Bullock, two. Messam, two. I don't know how Bullock got two. I don't know how Messam got two. Um, but anyway, you could say, hey, it's just one poll, so you don't know how you know true it is. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. And also, I've generally tried this election season to stay a little bit more away from polls. I covered them more in 2016 than I do now because... I don't want to fall into that same trap the mainstream media does, which is use it to push a narrative as you pretend like you're just describing a narrative. I don't want to do that, which is why I haven't covered many. But every now and then I see one that's so interesting to me that I can't help myself, and I have to cover it at least a little bit. So anyway, here we are. That's exactly what I'm doing now. But I I wouldn't be surprised to see this reflected in more polls moving forward if they keep asking this question because – and Crystal Ball pointed this out on Twitter of Rising. She's like, well, these are the three candidates who have the strongest claim of being anti-establishment in the Democratic Party, and they're winning. And this busts up the narrative of, oh, what you need is, you know, former Trump voters, to get them, you have to move to the right, and you have to be more conservative. And, you know, you have to 
kowtow to them and abandon your own values and policy preferences. And that's just not true. In fact, what I've said for a long time now is it's the populism, stupid. Strong populism holds the Democratic base because they're incredibly populist, holds actual lefties, okay, gets independents, gets new voters, and chips away at the Republicans or former Republicans or Trump voters. So, it, But you have to be an actual populist. Now, Tulsi, for example, very interesting character. I have disagreements with her on, like, her health care bill, for example, um, but she is out there nonstop arguing against war. You cannot say that she's not sincere in wanting to end the Iraq war, wanting to end the Afghanistan war. You can't say that, you know, her main issue isn't, as she says, quote, ending regime change war. So, wow, would you look at that? Ending war turns out to be very popular among former Trump voters who realize he's a charlatan and a con man and a fraud. And so that's why she's leading among them. Bernie, another guy who pushing for Medicare for all. There's one poll that shows 52%, 52% of Republican voters support Medicare for all. So that, that makes sense why Bernie's pretty high up there in terms of getting former Trump voters. The other thing is they look at somebody like Bernie, and when Bernie talks about how the whole system's corrupt, I don't take their big money, you know, I people, we're doing a movement here, it's not me, it's us. These former Trump voters look at that and they go, okay, so this guy's the real deal. Trump ended up being a fake populist, this guy's the real deal. It's working, Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang has done such a fantastic job on this, this particular issue of talking former Trump voters off the ledge when it comes to immigration. Because Andrew says, hey, listen, don't be mad at, you know, your neighbor who might be, have brown skin or black skin. Um, you have to understand that the problem that's impacting your life in a negative way is not immigration. You have more in common with your immigrant brother than you don't. It's automation. So, you know, your jobs are going. Now, there's a debate as to how much of it is outsourcing versus immigration, I think, or versus uh, automation. Both of them are massively important, and both of them have negatively hurt the economy, outsourcing and automation. So it's, I think it's both of those things. But his argument is, listen, don't blame people who you have a lot in common with who are struggling to get by just like you. Blame, basically, the machines. I sound like Bill O'Reilly. He used to say that on the show. The machines are coming. Um, but blame the fact that a lot of these jobs are going away permanently because we're moving towards automated systems. And for some reason, that's been a light bulb moment for a lot of former Trump voters where they go, you know what? That's a good point that, you know, hey, now I go to the store and I see the automatic checkout and I see half the staff is laid off at the Walmart or whatever it might be. And they go, wow, maybe that is the problem. And it allows them to have a lot more class consciousness than they did before. And the, old, the oldest trick in the book is the elites, the ruling class, gets working class people, working class white people, to blame working class black and brown people for their problems. It's divide and conquer. Hey, look over there. Oh, oh isn't, it, isn't it the immigrants' problem? The immigrants got no money, no power, and they're struggling to get by. But isn't it the immigrants' fault that you're hurting right now and you're not doing too well? Actually, no, it's not. It's that the rules are rigged in favor of the corporations and rigged in favor of the billionaires and the rich. And um, you're taking all the money and running out the back door, and everybody else is struggling. So 
but it's great that he was able to come in there and say, no, don't blame them, blame automation. That was a light bulb moment for a lot of former Trump voters. And as long as they feel like somebody's actually fighting for them, they're willing to vote for them. So Andrew Yang, he's a Democrat, but he's leading on, I believe, in UBI, universal basic income. And a lot of former Trump voters go, oh, well, I think a thousand bucks a month will help me massively. Now, again, we can get into details and specifics, and I could say, hey, I don't agree with exactly how he constructed his UBI, and that's all an open and fair conversation. But what I think is not debatable is that what he's doing is converting former Republicans, which is a wonderful thing. And that's the ultimate takeaway from this story that I wanted to you know, stress here. It's, guys, this is a good thing. If there's anything that I could get the left, if I could get the left to believe this, my job is done. And that is take yes for an answer. So when you're trying to convert people and somebody goes, yeah, you got me. That's not the time for you to turn around and be like, well, you used to be bad and wrong. Therefore, I, I don't want to convince you. Because people will use, like I've heard people use the fact that Tulsi and Yang convert former Republicans, use that against them. Like, oh, you're getting a lot of Republican support. But she's not getting a Republican support by saying, I now agree with the Republicans on everything. She's getting Republican support by staying true to her own values. Now, again, I disagree with Tulsi on some issues, and that's fine, and that's fair game. But if she's out there and she's putting front and center, um, you know, ending regime change wars, and then that brings in Republicans, there's no problem with that at all. That's a positive thing. That's a wonderful thing. If Andrew Yang gets people to stop hating immigrants and gets people to be in favor of a universal basic income and other you know, left-wing ideas, that's a good thing. And Bernie's doing it as well, guys. He's number two on the list. <laughs> and he's doing it because he's genuine, because he's honest, because he's uncorrupted, because he really means it, and because he never stops fighting for people. So, again, take yes for an answer if you're on the left. If you're converting people, good. Now, again, it might be, so it might be that when you convert somebody, at first you only get them on one or two issues. Give it time, man. Give it a year. Give it two years. Keep making your case. Keep putting your arguments out there for all to see. Engage. Engage with them. And then eventually, maybe they'll go, you know, I only used to agree with you on one or two things. Now I'm kind of like 92% in agreement with you, and I only have minor disagreements with you on the edges. That's all a good thing. That's not something to attack somebody for. That's something to commend somebody for. If it's Tulsi, if it's Yang, if it's Bernie, these are the only three that are really seriously doing it. If it's these people converting former Trump voters, again, take yes for an answer. And here's a prediction. You would have never, well, it's not really a prediction. It's just describing what I think is the case. Um, You wouldn't have gotten Mitt Romney voters this way. Because there were many Trump voters, particularly in the distressed areas in the Rust Belt, who did roll the dice on him. And they didn't necessarily agree with him on everything. He went too far in many ways. But they rolled the dice on him and said, hey, maybe he'll bring the jobs back. I don't think that's the same block as the Mitt Romney voters, the Thurston Howell III voters. I think that the Mitt Romney voters are a lot more elitist and out of touch and a lot more TFG than some, some Trump voters in the Rust Belt there. So that's why you see Tulsi, Bernie, and Yang chipping away and uh, getting that crossover Trump support. And isn't it interesting that in many ways, particularly with Bernie, 
it's like he's he's proving what my case has been forever, which is no, no, no. Stay true to your message. Fight for your populist left ideas, your social, social democratic ideas. Show everybody how uncorrupted you are and that you care about them. And you're going to hold the left base and you're going to get those crossover voters from the right. That's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what's happening. So, again, the whole notion from the establishment of, well, you got to run to the left in the primary and then run to the right in the general and be moderate. <laughs> no. What if you just didn't pivot and saw what happened? No pivot, which, by the way, they call a pivot. I call lying. You said one thing in the primary, now you're going to say another thing in the general. What if you just told the truth and said it as you see it every step of the way? Well, we know what would happen. What would happen is <clears throat> Tulsi, Bernie, and Yang leading among uh, you know, former Trump voters and getting them on our side. I'm sorry, but if you think that that's a bad thing, you are fighting to try to permanently make left-wing ideology its own little subculture. And we don't want to be a subculture. We want to win. We want to be the culture. And we want to fix the problems in the country. So I'm not, I'm not in the business of just throwing bombs at everybody who I disagree with or, or, you know, who might be savable. I'm in the business of convincing people. Not changing our values and our policy preferences, not changing that, not compromising that at all, but sticking to our values and changing minds and believing in redemption, I think, is an important thing. Believing that people are savable and changeable in terms of their ideology, that's all a positive thing. So I welcome all these former Trump voters, um, and I'm happy that they changed their mind. And um, the more we keep hammering away on the message that works, the more we will change more of their minds. And again, that's an absolutely wonderful thing, not a bad thing. Okay, now we're going to talk about billionaires. Now we are going to talk about billionaires, and then we'll take a break. So Bernie Sanders took some shots at uh, fragile billionaires who were crying about the idea of a wealth tax and their taxes going up. Um, I'm going to show you that. We'll also talk a little bit about Warren released a new ad where he basically kind of does the same thing in the sense of calling out billionaires directly. So let's take a look and then we'll discuss. It is telling the 1% and the corporate elite, who, by the way, in case you haven't noticed it, are getting very nervous lately. The billionaires are actually getting very emotional. They're breaking down. They want to take our money. Oh, my God. 
How terrible can these people be? We only have $150 billion. They want us to pay taxes. What is this country coming to? Now, I just want to remind everybody that even though Bernie kind of repeatedly says there should be no billionaires, his tax plan actually allows for billionaires to keep existing. And we went over his, uh, his wealth tax plan um, in a pretty comprehensive way on this show. And yeah, you'd still have billionaires that have that are multi-billionaires that, you know, some have over $10 billion still. So even though he says there should be no billionaires, his plan still allows for billionaires. So I just want to make that clear. But yeah, the point he's getting at is 100% true because he is calling for, you know, a reasonable wealth tax and you have this like massive backlash and overreaction from billionaires as if they're like somehow being oppressed. And even in a situation that goes way above and beyond what any of the plans do, Warren's plan or Bernie's plan, like take the Bill Gates example that he used on Twitter that I was talking about recently too, $100 billion tax on him. He would still have $6 billion. <laughs> now, again, nobody's calling for a $100 billion tax. None of the plans take $100 billion of Bill Gates' $106 billion. None of the plans take that. None of the plans even come close to that. But even if they did, even if they did, am I going to be outraged? $6 billion is still more than you can spend in an entire lifetime. And then the funny thing is, and I always find this like kind of sad too, is that there is like a, you know, a strong disagreement with that position that still exists in society because people do phrase it as I just did, which is, oh, what if we taxed him $100 billion? And instead of saying like, oh, what if he still had $6 billion left, people focus on the taxing $100 billion point. But the argument I've made all along is, man, what a misleading way of framing the situation and thinking of the situation. Because nobody really, nobody worked that hard. It's not, like, it's not a meritocracy to this extent where, oh, the harder you work, the further you go. So he earned all $106 billion. 60% of wealth in this country is inherited. And this, this isn't from Kyle Kalinske. This is, I was, we covered this story maybe two years ago. Um, I'm not sure if it was Thomas uh, Piketty or Emmanuel Saez. But these economists calculated it. 60% of wealth in this country is inherited. So that means that, you know, it's passed on from generation to generation, which means by definition, these people didn't work for that money. They're not self-made. It's just being passed on to them. And it's interesting that conservatives love to argue, like, you have to work for what you get in this world, except when it comes to the wealthy, where 60% of their stuff is inherited, and they don't say, oh, whoa, 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 the government should tax that 60% because that's the only way to make it fair. That's the only way to make it like a meritocracy. You've got to work for where you want to go. You've got to work at it. So we're going to make you work for it. They don't say that. They say, no, 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 hands off, hands off, hands off. The rich don't have to work for what they get. They shouldn't have to work for what they get. But, you know, the poor should. Working class should. I mean, that really gives away the whole game, doesn't it? Like, if you actually wanted to have a meritocracy you would have to have higher inheritance taxes. And like, I just, I really do find it sad and pathetic that so many people have like, the assumption baked into their worldview is 
how it is right now. It's a status quo bias. Oh, how everything is right now, that's how it should be, and that makes sense. Therefore, if somebody has $150 billion like Jeff Bezos, well, I mean, he just earned all that. It's not that, you know, he's the head of a business that routinely undervalued his, uh, you know, the, the work of his laborers that we had to force to pay a living wage, and he only did that recently, that kind of bought political influence in favor to help him continue rigging the rules in his direction. There's not a single tax plan out there where Jeff Bezos wouldn't still be massively wealthy. But there are tax plans out there now that say, hey, man, you could still be a multi-billionaire, but workers have to be treated fairly. Everybody needs to have health care. We have to have free college education. Um, we need paid vacation time by law, um, paid sick leave, paid maternity leave family leave, whatever you want to call it. So I just, it's, it's funny to me that there's anybody who doesn't view it like Bernie views it, where he sees these billionaires crying and whining, and he's like, what is, like, jeez, oh, you're so stupid. You're so stupid. There's not a single scenario in which you're not going to be okay. There's not a single scenario. Like, the fact that everybody doesn't view it like that, and that's not, like, immediately obvious to people, upsets me. Because it means that the propaganda has been so thick and so strong for so long that people really do think, like, no, I will go on Twitter and I will cape for um, Jeff Bezos to keep his $150 billion. <laughs> And I will fight for Bill Gates to keep his $106 billion. And you know what? They did philanthropy. You're buying into a system that allows them to accumulate that amount of wealth in the first place. We shouldn't have to rely on the kindness of any individual, unelected individual person to do positive things. And, and, and here's the other thing that always clicked with me, an argument that always clicked with me is at a certain point, there's a certain amount of wealth that just inherently threatens the stability of a system and undermines a, a democratic system. Because when somebody has so much wealth, they could just buy the political process effectively. They could buy all the politicians. You've seen this with the Koch brothers. They go in and they literally, almost literally buy up like state legislatures and have all the politicians or their little puppets dancing for them and let them get away with whatever they want to get away with, whether it's fracking in certain places, which causes earthquakes. They don't care that the people are against it. Doesn't doesn't matter because the Koch brothers bought the state legislatures. Do you not see now how extreme wealth is inherently a problem? Do you not see that? That you're granting people in society way more power than any individual should have. And that undermines a system functioning properly. Do you not see that? Because that's a really important point, and it's rarely made, that having high taxes on the wealthy is also an attempt to make us more of a meritocracy, to make it more equal, to make it more of everybody gets a fair shot. When you have the extreme wealth inequality and income inequality, you have a system that is compromised up front. The well is poisoned up front. And there's no way you're going to have a system that functions the way it should for everybody in the society. There's no way you're going to have it. So anyway, uh, Bernie absolutely nailed it there. Now, let's also just go directly into the Warren ad. Warren released an ad going after billionaires, too. Take a look. It is time for a wealth tax in America. The vilification of billionaires makes no sense to me. It's bull. 
She would ruin what we have. She probably thinks more of cataclysmic change to the economic system as opposed to tinkering. Well, I'm most scared by Elizabeth Warren. So here's the deal. You built a great fortune. Good for you. A guarantee. You built it at least in part using workers all of us help pay to educate. Getting your goods to market on roads and bridges all of us help pay to build. We're Americans. We want to make these investments. All we're saying is when you make it big, pitch in two cents so everybody else gets a chance to make it. Now, keep it real, that's a good ad. That's a solid ad. There's dialogue on left Twitter about how, well, look how much further Bernie goes. Because when Bill Gates cried about Warren's specific wealth tax, she responded like, oh, I guarantee you wouldn't be paying $100 billion. And then was like, oh, let's have a meeting. And Bernie's response was like, even if you paid a million, $100 million, billion, who cares? You'd have $6 billion. So people were like, ooh, look at the difference, and Bernie's further left, and those are stronger words. I totally agree with that, but we also have to be objective enough to understand that that's a good ad. Like, that's a solid ad that's going to appeal to a lot of people, because a lot of people do need to be more eased into it. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's just the point I was just getting at, how it, it boggles my mind that some people have to be eased into the idea that, like, certainly nobody should have $100 billion. <laughs> Like, they need to be eased into that, but they do. Some people do need to be eased into that. It, it is what it is. And she's going to appeal to that subset of the country. She's going to appeal to them. Um, because the way she frames it, oh, two cents. Two cents on every dollar. Just pitch that in. Um, but I, I can't escape this segment without giving you guys the reality of the situation, which is this. Here's the billionaire count for donors to all the candidates. Number one, Pete Buttigieg. 23 billionaires have donated to him. What a giant fraud he is. Cory Booker, 18, Kamala Harris, 17, Michael Bennett, 15, Joe Biden, 13, John Hickenlooper, 11, Beto O'Rourke, who's now out, 9, Amy Klobuchar, 8. Um, in this election cycle, Elizabeth Warren has two billionaire donors. By the way, I don't know what the dollar amount is because it didn't list the dollar amount. But, 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 in her entire career, how many donors, billionaire donors, have given some, uh, one donation or another to Elizabeth Warren? 30. 30. Now, do I think that um, she's totally compromised and will 100% do the bidding of billionaires? No, I don't. And I think anybody who tries to overreach and make that case is being silly. But I do think it is telling that um, her number is 30 and Bernie Sanders is zero. And that does show that he is further left, and he actually is probably going to fight even harder on this front for even further left plans, which I think are positive, which I think are good. Um, and by the way, there was a, a billionaire donor who tried to donate, I think the number was $470 to Bernie's campaign. This just happened. He returned the money. Now, by the way, I think that might be like legitimately be like the one <laughs> billionaire, and there's probably more than one, I'm being unfair, but who are a traitor to their class and who are like, no, no, I don't even think I should be a billionaire. This is ridiculous. This is, I, I shouldn't have this much money. I'm sure there's some out there like that. But Bernie is a matter of principle was like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not going to take the money. I'm not going to do it. I mean, Warren's okay. She's doing all right here. But there is only one America's dad, Bernard Sanders, and I think that's clear. 
Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, um, I got more on this time Fox News and their over-defensive billionaires. We'll talk about that. And much, much more, including Trump Jr. had a book event in Los Angeles, and he got booed to high heaven. So stay right there. We'll be right back with all that and much more.
All right, y'all, we back. Welcome to the show. If you're just joining us, if you're not just joining us, then don't welcome to the show. Welcome to the jungle. Like the song from the 1980s. Anyway, Okay, so, we still got stuff on billionaires. That we are going to get to, bitch. We are going to get to, bitch. So first, um, Fox News and Fox Business. Credit to Media Matters for setting this up, because this is something else. This is a special clip. Um... Okay. All right, here we go. So Fox News and Fox Business Network are, uh, they are really, really over-defending the rich the closer we get to this election. So Media Matters put together a compilation for us. You got to give them credit. I don't know how long it took to make this thing. I mean, they could have been taking clips for like two months to get this giant of a compilation or you never know, it's Fox News, so this could have all happened in like a two-day span. But um, here they go. They're going to do everything in their power to defend the uber-wealthy. Take a look. Well, even Democrats and senators all say tax the rich. That's all we need to do to get to the promised land. We're talking about super-duper-wealthy people who have assets of more than $50 million, right? Well, $50 million is big, but it's not as big as you think. Oh! Uh- Making the rich poor, and of course, their their whole strategy is making the rich poor. A 
Americans now believe that there should be the highest income tax rate to be up to 70%. So we'll end up just like Europe with, you know, oh, it's all the Wall Street of thing for the country. So if you really you want to get rid of Wall Street, that it's going to be about a war on the rich. You're not going to go anywhere. And taking money from the rich just to give it to the poor redistribution is not a good reason to tax the rich. But Democrats all think that if you throw money with a government program at something, it's going to help those that need it, and it's going to help income inequality, right. when in fact, if you do the math, many times it doesn't. All of them would tax the rich. The millionaires, they're already paying over 80% of all the taxes. That's not enough. Yeah. But you never hear that number. Well, you hear it on this program. You know that. Okay, there is just so much to break down there. When... When they say, oh, they're paying over 80% of all the taxes, that's so misleading because they make all the money. <laughs> so I like how they think that's a gotcha. Like, oh, yeah? Well, the rich are paying over 80% of the taxes. And still, it is disproportionately, as a percentage, it is less than what a working class person is paying. Again, that's not me talking. That's a, you know, a recent report that was released which dove into the specifics and found that right now is the first time in U.S. history that a working-class person is paying a higher tax rate than the mega-rich. I believe it was 23 and 24 percent or thereabouts, the effective tax rate that they pay. Working-class person, 24 percent. Mega-rich, 23 percent. It goes back to, I don't know if you guys remember this story, but there was a challenge that Warren Buffett issued. He said to all the CEOs, hey, if you could show me that you pay a higher effective tax rate than your secretary does, I'll give you a million dollars of my own money. Nobody was able to collect. You want to know why? Because all the CEOs were paying a lower effective tax rate than their secretaries were. You know, Mitt Romney, it was, all, it was a scandal in 2012 when Mitt Romney released his taxes. Why? He was paying 14%. He made millions and millions of dollars in one year, and he paid 14%. Why? It was all capital gains. Capital gains is when you make your money in the stock market, and you pay a lower tax rate than if you actually labor for your money. If you work for your money, let's say you work for your money, and you made like, let's say, $80,000. let us say you do pretty well. You make $80,000, you do something in construction or whatever. You're going to pay a higher tax rate than Mitt Romney, who made $14 million, $8 million, anywhere in that range, and he's only paying 14% in taxes. Is that, does that make sense to you? No, that, that makes absolutely no sense. That's what's called a regressive tax rate. So um, it's so misleading when they do the whole, well, they, the rich pay 80% of the taxes. That's so misleading. Um, now let's get into some of the other arguments that they made. Uh, they said, oh, my God, you're vilifying the rich. Okay, I've never heard anybody on the left, like, angrily rant against some sort of expert surgeon who makes a million dollars a year. Never heard it. Never heard it. I've never heard anybody on the left go after, um, you know, a professional athlete. LeBron James, I don't know, Kobe Bryant, you fill in the blank with whoever your favorite professional athlete is. I've never, and Kobe Bryant, I'm dating myself. He's old school now. He's been retired for a little bit since 2016, but still one of the best ever. Um, anyway, 
I never heard anybody on the left target people who there's an argument to be made that, no, no, they really, like, busted their ass, and it's almost like a meritocracy that they're making as much as they're making. You know, don't get me wrong, I still tax them more than they're taxed, but I've never heard anybody, like, angrily go after them for making that money. The only time people on the left get really mad is when we're talking about people who rigged the system to unfairly get the wealth. And that's why Wall Street is a, is a common target, is because you have, you know, Bernie says it, fraud is a business model on Wall Street. That's true. It was. That's the whole thing that happened during the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. You had, um, you know, these rating agencies rate these toxic subprime packages as AAA, which means, oh, they're a safe investment. But that was nonsense because they were bribed to rate it AAA. And everybody on Wall Street was playing hot potato with toxic assets that they knew were going to go bust at one point. There's a Goldman Sachs story I always share on this show, which is on the one hand, they sold these packages saying they're awesome to their clients. And on the other hand, they were betting on those same packages to tank because they thought they were going to tank and they made money two ways, selling it and then betting on it to tank. Fraud. Fraud is what that is. So you know who we get mad at? Those kinds of people. The people who are, you know, vulture capitalists who are predatory, the people who maybe they own a business and they screw over their workers. They don't pay their workers a living wage. That's who the left targets. So this idea of vilifying the rich, nobody's vilifying the rich. We're saying, hey, pay a a reasonable tax rate and also don't rig the system and screw people. Don't be a, you know, a rapacious billionaire who's bulldozes everybody in their path and destroys working families. That's all they're saying. So the idea, oh, you're vilifying the rich. Nonsense. Nonsense. Uh, And then he says, or I should say one of the hosts says, oh, 50 million is not as big as you think. Counterpoint, yes, it is. And then they also do class warfare rhetoric flipped. It's so weird, because if you turn on MSNBC, you will never hear them say that the rich are doing class warfare on working class families. You never hear that, ever, ever, ever. But you turn on Fox News, and they're always, class warfare, class warfare, class warfare. But they flip it. They say, oh, the, the mobs, the hordes of the, the peasants are uh, trying to do class warfare against the poor, oppressed, rich. Oh, the poor, rich. Yes. When will your boot be off their neck? They're not oppressed. They're not oppressed. They're the opposite of oppressed. But this is something that happens, man. Whether it's the uber wealthy or the far right, they have this profound victim complex, and they flip the reality exactly on its head. Nobody whines more about being a victim than the least victimized people in the country. And that's what we're seeing here. Um, and I'll just I'll end with some facts for you because I think these are pretty important. Uh, according to economist Emmanuel Saez, income inequality has reached gilded age levels. Right back in the gilded age, guys. Right back in it. Wall Street bonuses in 2017 were 31.4 billion dollars. That's more than two times the earnings of every minimum wage worker in the country combined. So in one year, Wall Street bonuses 
were more than double the earnings of every minimum wage earner in the country combined. You want to talk about a lopsided economy. CEO pay in 1980 was 42 to 1. The CEO would make 42 times more than the average worker. Uh, Now it's about 361 to 1. And then, of course, we have the three billionaires have as much as the bottom 50% of Americans combined fact, which is scary. I think it's Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Warren Buffett. Those three have more than 50% of Americans combined. Yeah, it's okay to want to ameliorate the, how extreme this income and wealth inequality is. In fact, I think it's the only reasonable position. All right, Trump Jr. gets uh, protested like crazy. Donald Trump Jr. had a book event in Los Angeles. This is for his new book, Triggered. It's kind of amazing that there's like 13 different books, shows, whatever, all these different things named Triggered. Um, And they scrapped the Q&A portion of the show, particularly because he was protested by the uber far right. Take a look. Name a time where conservatives have disrupted even the furthest leftists on a college campus. Right? It, it doesn't happen that way. We're, we're willing to listen. We're willing to listen. See what I mean? And that, that is the problem. And the reason oftentimes it doesn't make sense to do the Q&A is not because we're not willing to talk about the why the dating thing came up. I mean, I guess there's got to be a backstory to that that we're missing with the context of this clip. But uh, he ended up walking off because there were such loud protests going on. Um, Now, the word is that these are protests by a guy named Nick Fuentes and all of his, you know, followers. And um, they're like the new iteration of the alt-right who have embraced more of a Christian evangelical fundamentalist framework to push for their alt-right beliefs. Um, Because obviously the whole Richard Spencer project imploded on itself because he was caught on camera doing freaking Nazi salutes and, you know, kind of spoiled his whole tap dance and his whole game of trying to give himself mainstream credibility 
by, you know, doing his hair and wearing a suit. And mainstream media losers immediately fell for the trick. And they were like, oh, he must be serious. He must not be, like, almost exactly like a Nazi. <laughs> and he was. He was that. I mean, there's so many. And a, a recent audio clip of him leaked screaming about, you know, I don't know what he was saying. I think he said the word kike in the thing. Um, and it was just, he's a Nazi. He's a Nazi. That's what he is. And it's obvious. You could try to dress it up a little bit and say, oh, he's a white nationalist. Okay, but he wants to purge everybody who's a person of color from the country at best, at worst, wants to kill them. And I certainly would have no problem if they were killed, for sure. So, yeah, the media caught on to Richard Spencer's trick. I mean, it took them long enough, like two years into them pumping him up. They were finally like, oh, oh, this is pretty bad. And then they stopped covering him, and he imploded. Milo Yiannopoulos, same thing. He was caught on tape by BuzzFeed, literally hanging out with Richard Spencer and legit Nazis and, like, kind of laundering their ideology a little bit into mainstream conservatism. So now you have this new iteration, Nick Fuentes and his followers, and they've made a point of protesting more mainstream conservatives. And in the case of Charlie Kirk, his ideology is more libertarian. He's a, you know, I think it's fair to say he's a traditional conservative in many ways, and he's certainly a big-time Trump lover and Trump defender, but he's also a libertarian-leaning conservative. And I think he genuinely is not in favor of as hateful an ideology as the people who are to his right and Nick Fuentes and his crowd. And Nick Fuentes and his crowd view Charlie Kirk and, and these more establishment-aligned Republicans, and I say that because, again, he's, he loves Trump, they view them as, like, sellouts. They view them as, like, you know, you're not representing the true right-wing ideology that we do represent, which is more of a fascist-leaning uh, evangelical Christian fundamentalist framework. And there's the tension. And, you know, the, main, the most important point to take away from this video, and I think this is, it's so telling, it's so striking in this context, is that when you have lefties protest Democrats, like standard Democrats, what are they protesting for? It just happened the other day. Medea Benjamin of Code Pink was out there protesting Debbie Wasserman Schultz and saying, stop the coup in Bolivia. And, like, it's almost always deeply anti-war or anti-corruption or, like, for Medicare for all. You could have a group of lefties protesting, you know, left-wing, uh, supposed left-wing politicians, Democratic politicians, because they sold out and they're representing the health insurance companies, and they're no longer representing the will of the people, which is Medicare for all. So it's so telling that these are, these are our issues and these are their issues. When a, a, a true lefty protests a Democratic politician, it's like, hey, man, give everybody health care. Hey, man, end the wars. When the far right protests the traditional right, it's like, hey, man, be more hateful. <laughs> hey, man, why don't you, like, totally shut down the border completely. Why don't you do that? I, it's hard to get into the mindset of somebody who's kind of fallen for that far right grift because I got bad news for you. doesn't matter how much you hate immigrants and how badly you want to treat them or what you want to do to them, God forbid, physical harm, as a lot of these people do. Um, that ain't going to improve your life. That's not going to improve it at all. It reminds me of that guy, Matthew Heimbach, um, of the 
American Workers Party, I think it's called, which is another, it's literally a Nazi party that they tried to mask by calling it that. But anyway, he was given a, I saw him give an interview one time, and he was like, you know, Donald Trump is a terrible guy. Uh, he's, problem is he sold out to Wall Street. Problem is he's uh, sold out to the military industrial complex. Problem is he sold out to the establishment. And he was, for the first minute and a half of his speech, he sounded like a legit leftist. And then at the end, hilarious bait and switch flipperoo. He's like, and that's why we need to totally get rid of all these immigrants and shut down the border and <laughs> create a white ethno state, basically, was the argument that the guy made. And I was, I was stunned as I was watching it because it's like, how do people not realize that the first half of what he said does not lead to that conclusion of like, well, obviously all the immigrants' fault, right? You want to create a white ethno state? I got bad news for you, Matthew Heimbach. You just railed against the military-industrial complex. You just railed against Wall Street. You just railed against the political establishment. Almost all of Wall Street, almost all of the military-industrial complex, almost all of the political establishment is white. It's certainly an overrepresentation from what the numbers are in the population. Definitely when you talk about Wall Street. Definitely when you talk about Wall Street. Way overrepresentation of white folks. So you're like, oh my God, you got all these problems. He's telling you after the establishment, which is why you kick out all these minorities who didn't do anything. You're going to have all the same problems that you pretend like you're against. And that's the point. Is like, what do these people think? You think by protesting Donald Trump Jr., you think by protesting Charlie Kirk, that uh, and try, trying to get them to be more hardline on immigration, you think that's going to solve anything? You think that's going to fix anything? You think that's going to improve people's lives? No, not at all, not even close. You're going to have all the same problems that you have now, and you're going to realize, oh, my God, I've been duped into an ideology that makes no sense, none at all. <laughs> so it's actually kind of sad in many ways. But then the final point I'll make is this, and I think it's fair to point this out. Like, hey, man, and I don't know about Charlie. I haven't followed Charlie's career that closely, but the thing about, like, Trump Jr., it's like, you don't think your father created a space for this now in the national dialogue? Because he did. He emboldened a lot of these people. And he emboldened a lot of these people to take it that next extra step and run it into the end zone. When he's out there, he has Stephen Miller as an advisor, and Stephen Miller was just leaked that he literally was, like, citing Nazi website sources for, you know, his, his ideology and in emails with Breitbart. But, like, when your dad says, we need a total and complete shutdown of Muslims coming into the country, total and complete shutdown, like, you don't realize that now, that's, I mean, that's bad enough on its own. That's deeply, deeply bigoted to say a billion people are, e- are all equally bad because Al-Qaeda exists. I mean, that's, but like, you don't realize that now you've created this space where we've crossed a clear line where now you're inviting these even further right goons into the national discourse and the dialogue. And as soon as you allow in that, of course, the next step is like, <laughs> the Jews run everything. This is what they would argue. Oh, my God, the Jews run everything, and it's a cabal, and you got to kick them out. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of ugly beliefs that are now, in many ways, they've become mainstream. And the chickens are coming home to roost. So you guys created this space for this dialogue, and now you're shocked. It reminds me of the Pikachu meme where the, with the shocked face. It's like, and now you're shocked that the hatred has gone like a step or two further than your hatred. And you're like, oh my God, wow, there's a lot of hatred out there. Well, gee, yeah, I wonder how they got so emboldened. 
<laughs> and how they got their entrance into this, you know, this world of politics. It's like Bernie Sanders inspired people to get into the political process and to understand that their life has value and to understand that we could fix the system and everybody can have health care and everybody can have an education and everybody can have decent paying jobs. That's what Bernie Sanders inspired. Donald Trump, in many ways, a lot of these young people who are now part of the alt-right or the dressed up version of the alt-right, yeah, they could have gotten their political beginning by listening to a Donald Trump speech talking about how the Mexicans, they're criminals, they're rapists. I assume some are good people. Uh, the total and complete shutdown of Muslims coming into this country, shithole countries trying to immigrate to our country, demographic changes are bad. Like, that could have been the step in. Trump opened that door for them a little bit, and then they opened it the rest of the way and walked through, and here we are. So, on the one hand, I feel bad for them, because it's true, they're not as crazy as the alt-right or the new dressed-up version of the alt-right, white nationalists, whatever you want to call them, but... You did open up that door a little bit, man. And, you know, it's a, almost a little bit a, too little too late at this point to be like, ah, okay, you guys are hateful. And he did say it there. He's like, you guys are hateful. You're asking hateful things. So, I don't know. I'm a little bit torn about how to feel on this. But make no mistake about it, it's clear who the worst people are in that room. Time to talk about Bolivia again. Bolivia again. I got a video for this one that you are not going to want to miss. Bolivia is still reeling from the political instability brought about uh, after the Morales coup. Now, um, I did a long, detailed segment on this. I'm happy how well that segment is being received. I think it was an important segment. I try to be as nuanced and detailed as humanly possible in that segment. Um, but basically, you know, my argument was the textbook definition of a coup is when the military, you know, forces out the leader, and that's what happens. So you have to call it a coup. Um, the one criticism of Morales that I thought was legitimate is the idea that, hey, he shouldn't have been involved in any way, shape, or form in trying to change term limits. Um, and I, I still feel that. You know, I've, I've always been kind of torn on the issue of term limits in general because they are undemocratic. But at the same time, I get the bigger picture idea for them, which is to try to prevent a, a really terrible situation of somebody basically seizing power and never letting it go and staying in power until they die. So I, I see both sides of the term limit debate, but I definitely am of the opinion that if you're in office, in your, if you're in power, you shouldn't be the one to try to overturn term limits to then stay in longer. So I do think that's a fair criticism. But outside of that, this was a coup. He didn't steal the election. There's no evidence to say he stole the election. He also agreed to a new election, even when he didn't have to. But he said, hey, listen, I won by over 10 percentage points. Um, but if everybody's saying, oh, my God, there's all these question marks or whatever, fine, let's have another election. Totally fine with that. He said that, and then he announced he's stepping down. And, of course, we learned he's stepping down, not because he wants to, but because he was forced out because it was a coup. It was an illegitimate coup. Okay, so... That's the, that's the, you know, the Cliff Notes version of what happened in Bolivia, okay? Um, well, now it's gotten even worse since that segment because there was violence being done 
against Morales supporters. They took a pro-Morales mayor from one of the cities. The opposition threw red paint all over her, tortured her, and paraded her through the streets. The opposition is violent. They ransacked Morales' home. They, they went, uh, they destroyed the homes of other people who were part of Morales' party. Um, Morales represents uh, the indigenous population in, in Bolivia and the opposition. They are not indigenous, or many of them are. I don't, I'm sure there's you know, a little crossover here and there, but it's kind of like a Democratic versus Republican Party type situation where almost all of the minorities are in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party is overwhelmingly white. Obviously, minor differences around the edges, but that's by and large the trend. Um, so now the Senate vice president, a woman by the name of Janine Agnes, declared herself the interim president. Now here's who she is. Quote, I want a free, I want a Bolivia free of satanic indigenous rituals. The city is not for the indigenous. They should go to the mountains or plains. That's what she tweeted. Guys, Bolivia is two-thirds indigenous, quite literally a hater of the indigenous population, okay? There's more just flat-out bigoted tweets of hers, okay? I'm not going to go through them, not going to waste your time. Just know that that's who she is. Here's another moment from hers that's going viral. Take a look at this. returns to the palace. That's a giant Bible she's carrying in. Right-wing coups and religious fundamentalism almost always go hand in hand, and here we are. That's exactly what this is. Now, understand this fact as well. The next in line to be president in this situation would be president of the Senate. President of the Senate is part of Morales' party. So they prevented the president of the Senate from being the president and went to the vice president of the Senate, who's Janine Agnes. So they're literally like, it was obviously a coup. You don't, they're taking out the president and then everybody from that party, they're like, no, 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 not you, not you. We're going to skip over you. And the opposition, oh, would you look at that? The opposition, that's the president. She has the backing of just the police and the military. Listen, we just saw, regardless of what you think of Maduro in Venezuela, this is exactly the playbook that we just saw with Juan Guaido, where he, he's declaring himself president, but he's not. <laughs> he's not president, and it's just the U.S. is like, oh, oh so you're going to be the leader. You're going to be the leader, because he's going to represent U.S. interests. He's like, oh, oh, yeah, totally. This is the same shit that happened with Ahmed Chalabi. Remember him in, uh, in Iraq, where he convinced them, like, no, I- I'll, I'll be the leader of Iraq. And then it just... He wasn't because he had no backing in the country. So we're seeing a similar thing here, or very little backing, I should say. 
she only has the support of the police and the military. Sure, she has some supporters among the population. You know, uh, he won the election like 47 to 36, but he won by over 10 percentage points, so he won without getting that majority. I'm talking about um, Morales now. But like at least half the country is pro-Morales. He still has very high approval ratings. I also showed you the economic data. Minimum wage went up. Um, Inflation was solid. Uh, You had the GDP massively go up. You had he built thousands of um, clinics and and gymnasiums in poor uh, regions of the country. He lifted people out of poverty and extreme poverty by gargantuan numbers. So he had good results. His approval rating was still high. Now it's the opposition forcefully taking over power, and the only reason she's able to get away with it is the police and the military back her. It's like a textbook definition of a coup. Now the other thing I want to show you is this. This is super important. Within a few hours, the 24-hour deadline given by the Bolivian Workers Central, COB, will expire for the coup organizers to leave power. Otherwise, the country's largest trade union uh, central will call an indefinite general strike. So that's where we're at now. You have the pro-Morales unions are saying, oh, we're, we're not accepting the coup. You have to step down, give power back to the rightful president, Morales, and if you don't, we're going to do an indefinite general strike and ground the economy to a halt. I am very curious to see how this unfolds. Very curious. And then there's the other point, which is, this goes right back to the Cold War playbook, man. And John Bolton just said recently the Monroe Doctrine is alive and well. Here you go. And Bolivia has a tremendous amount of lithium, which is used in car batteries and which is used in phone batteries. So we want to get our hands on that lithium. And this is definitely one of the ways in which we can do it. Have a very pro-U.S. opposition seize power. But it does tell you quite a bit about their character. What she said about indigenous people and the fact that she's carrying a giant Bible into the palace. And she's like, finally the Bible returns. Says a lot, man. Right-wing coup, religious fundamentalism, this, this has everything. And, you know, despite the fact that there are, of course, criticisms... Morales is no angel, and I'm sure he's made mistakes and all this stuff, but this was a totally illegitimate power grab by the opposition. It just was. It just was. You want to have another election, even though he he won? Fine. I agree to that. He agrees to that. But it doesn't look like they're going to do it, and it looks like Bolivia, the Bolivia situation is going to get worse and worse as time goes by, but I hope that's not the case. I really hope that's not the case. Um, but every time, man, every time there's a successful leftist leader, there's always just brazen attempts to undermine him, take him out, and it's a terrible, terrible thing to see. Okay. Now we go to Elizabeth Warren. She was at the National Press Club, and she did something very bad. 
So Elizabeth Warren was at the National Press Club, and she dodged a question in a really, really clunky way. Take a look. Uh, Sam Husseini with The Nation and the Institute for Public Accuracy. Uh, Cortez, who was mentioned earlier, and other likely incoming congressional, uh, right, likely incoming uh, congressional um, members next year, proposed slashing the military budget to help pay for human and environmental needs. Uh, do you agree? And if I could, a second question. Um, would you consider introducing and sponsoring Betty McCollum's bill on uh, Palestinian children's rights in the Senate? So let me, I now sit on armed services, and boy, I have been in the middle of the sausage-making factory on that one. Um, and that has pushed me even more strongly in the direction of systemic reforms. I want to be able to have those debates. I want to be able to get them out in the open and talk about these core issues that affect our government, affect our people. I want to be able to debate them on the floor of the Senate. I want to be able to do amendments on them. Right now, the hold of big money over our government stops much of that. It chokes off much of the debate we should have. So I'm going to give you a system-wide answer because I think that's what matters here. This is not about one particular proposal. This is all the way across. How is it that we get the voices of the people heard in government instead of, over and over, the voices of the wealthy and the well-connected, the voices of those who can hire armies of lobbyists? So for me, that's what this is about. That was the worst dodge I've ever seen. That was, the question was so straightforward and so simple, and she couldn't answer it in a plain way. She was asked about cutting military spending to fund, you know, domestic priorities. And she was asked about a specific bill that protects the rights of Palestinian children. You want to know how you answer that? If you are in favor of cutting military spending and are in favor of protecting the rights of Palestinian children, here's how you answer it. Yes, I'm in favor of that bill and I'll co-sponsor it. And yes, I want to cut military spending. That's it. That's all you got to do. That's it. That's it. That's it. If she answered like that, perhaps we'd be doing this segment to give her credit, to be like, oh, well, that was straightforward, and she's on the record now. She wants to protect the rights of Palestinian kids, and she wants to cut military spending. But she doesn't want to do those things. She's not good on the issue of Israel-Palestine. She's a standard establishment Democrat on, those, on that issue. And on the issue of military spending, she voted for Donald Trump's monstrous increase in military spending. Guys, you got to understand how wild that is. The entire Democratic Party says, wow, Donald Trump is a thin-skinned moron, a buffoon. He doesn't have the temperament for this position, and his finger should be nowhere near the red button, and he should not be the one to control our great military. They say that, and then they turn around and voted to give him a bigger military than he even asked for, and they authorized uh, more NSA spying powers for him. To be fair, I don't know how Warren voted on that part, the NSA part, but she voted for his increase in the military spending. So in other words, the biggest criticism that the left has against Elizabeth Warren, she just said in no uncertain terms, 
oh, that criticism is totally merited, and you shouldn't trust me on foreign policy. That's what just happened. That's it. That's what just happened. Oh, don't, no, don't trust me on foreign policy. No, 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 I'm, I'm really bad on that. So now we have a candidate, and again, nowhere near Bernie, just be honest about that. Bernie's talking about cutting aid to Israel um, and redirecting some of that money to, for humanitarian aid in Gaza. Talking about leveraging our subsidy to them. Um, Warren voted for Trump's military budget. Bernie is in favor of eliminating all student loan debt. Bernie is in favor of eliminating all medical debt. Elizabeth Warren, not in favor of eliminating all student loan debt, not in favor of eliminating all medical debt. I mean, they're not really close. Like, we're not, is anybody under that, you know, under that delusion anymore? I'm so happy that Cenk Uger came out and endorsed Bernie the other day. Um, I knew in his heart of hearts, I, I knew all along he leaned in favor of Bernie. So it's weird to me that there was still a, a little bit of a false equivalence there for an extended period of time where he was like, oh, Warren and Bernie, Warren and Bernie, Warren and Bernie, and acting like it's 50-50. It's not. It's nowhere near 50-50. And this is just yet another example. That was – it wasn't even an artful way of BSing your way through the question. I've seen Trump more artfully BS a question than that. But it was just like, I, I believe, uh, yeah, systemic reform is good. It's good, and we should do more of systemic reform. I asked you about cutting the military budget and protecting Palestinian kids. New phone, who it is? All right, next. Pete Buttigieg has quickly become one of the worst candidates because there was a time where he tried to pave a lane for himself on the left and tried to be, oh, I'm like Bernie. And then as soon as he realized, oh, this lane is closed because that dude's got it on lock. He was like, I'll just run to the right. I'll just run to the right. So he has no core principles. He has no beliefs. He has no policy positions. He is just trying to become president. And he'll say anything and do anything to get to that position. So really just like cold-blooded approach here and gross approach here. Now, um, here's two moments put back-to-back. This is what he was saying about Medicare for All early on in the election compared to what he's saying now. Take a look. Do you think that Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders can get Medicare for All through Congress? Uh, I think it would be a pretty tough sell. So you'd say... So that's a nice way to say no, right? I just don't think those positions are right. I don't think it's right to believe that uh, telling Americans, no matter what you want to do, we're going to kick you off your private plan, and you're going to come on my plan, and you're going to like it. You're for a single-payer system, aren't you? I think so. I think that's the right place for us to head as a country, and we can debate the finer points of how to get there. Um, but I've been in countries, look, I studied in the U.K. where there's not only single-payer, there's national, uh, nationalized medicine, uh, which we're not calling for, even there. 
uh, there is a role for the private sector. I just don't believe that leaving Americans to the tender mercies of corporations is the best way to organize the health sector in this country. But, but in single payer, you would be replacing private health insurance. Yes, at least since the again, Medicare for all is the best framework. We have more examples of that. There were countless examples on Twitter of him even going after people who called him out. He'd be like, where did you get that I'm against Medicare for all? That's wrong. I'm for Medicare for all. Simple. He used to say that on Twitter. He used to make arguments like that in public. Another one is on Morning Joe. He was like, I don't know. Listen, we got to be bold and the real left-wing position is an NHS-style system, nationalized health care, public funding of public doctors and hospitals and institutions. That's the true left-wing position. So he's like, the, the compromise position is a French-style system, which is a single-payer system, public funding of private institutions, but public funding, so free at the point of service. Like, that's what he used to say. And now he's like, how about Medicare for all who want it? And I can't believe anybody would tell them hey, you shouldn't be able to keep your private health insurance. I believe in choice. Total, complete, utter flip. Shameless. Shameless. The dude believes in nothing. He's a cold-blooded sociopath trying to bulldoze his way to the White House by BSing every step of the way. Guys, he really doesn't believe in anything. So anybody who's falling for this whole shtick, it's scary. And just understand, there was one poll that came out recently, only one poll, just to be clear. It's not, you know, it's not like that's what the averages show. It's just one poll. But he's leading in Iowa in one poll. Now, I don't think that in the long run and for the entire election that Pete is going to fare well. I don't. But Iowa every now and then does throw curveballs at people. So you never know what could happen in Iowa. Anything can happen in Iowa, especially this far out. It's impossible to make an accurate prediction as to what's going to happen in Iowa. But it's, a, it's, it's shameful that he's gotten as far as he has. For sure it's shameful. Um, but still, I'm not worried in the grander scheme of things. Now, take a look at uh, Adam Johnson's tweet about Buttigieg. I love this one. He says, computer, sum up Buttigieg in two tweets. The one on the left says, When an audience member asked about conditions in Gaza during a campaign stop in Mason City, Mr. Buttigieg began responding in Arabic. The overwhelmingly white audience, largely unaware of what he said, broke into racuous applause. That's embarrassing. The one on the right. Democratic presidential hopeful Pete Buttigieg has, what does that word say? Has, I don't know what that word's supposed to be. Democratic presidential hopeful Pete Buttigieg has something, his support for Israel's attacks on Gaza, and condemned the returning rocket fire from Palestinians. So that's happening now in Israel. Uh, 26 Palestinians have been killed, and about 80 are injured. There have been zero Israelis that have been killed. So... The original thing that started this fighting was that Israel attacked militants um, that were part of Islamic Jihad, and that's the name of the group. And two militants, I think, were killed. But in the process of killing those two militants, they killed a bunch of civilians. 
So the responding rocket fire was, hey, you killed civilians here. And people like Pete and Joe Biden, they're only condemning the Palestinians. They're not condemning the Israelis who have a significant civilian death count right now, who are killing civilians. That says a lot, doesn't it? So only condemn, only condemn the Palestinians. Don't condemn the Israelis, even though the Palestinians have killed zero Israeli civilians, and the Israelis have killed about 26 Palestinian civilians. I think that says a lot. So this is who Mayor Pete is. This is who Mayor Pete is, and it ain't pretty. I do want to know what that word is. What is that word that I didn't fucking get? I will find you. I'm literally scrolling through Twitter to try to get a word. Oh, tweeted. <laughs> Democratic presidential hopeful Pete Buttigieg had tweeted his support. It just said eated, and I didn't, I was like, greeted? Is greeted the word? Okay, anyway, next. All right, the left, the left is winning. The left is winning a super important battle. So the left has successfully beat back an attempt from New Jersey Democrats to weaken a minimum wage increase. Uh, This is something special. The Intercept says the following. Under pressure from the left, New Jersey Democrats back off a vote to gut minimum wage law. Under pressure from activists, New Jersey Democrats on Wednesday postponed a vote on a bill that would almost certainly suspend the $15 minimum wage increase they signed into law in February. Democrats passed the current minimum wage bill in 2016 under former Republican Governor Chris Christie, who vetoed it. Democratic Governor Phil Murphy signed a later version of the bill into law in February, initiating the scheduled phase-in for the increase. Under the plan, the state would reach a $15 minimum wage for most workers by 2024. New Jersey is currently one of at least 30 states with minimum wages above the federal minimum of $7.25 an hour, according to the Department of Labor. But a measure that advocates say puts the wage increase schedule in jeopardy was scheduled to come up for a vote in the same Senate's Labor Committee on Thursday. Advocates from two New Jersey groups say that after they raised concerns with some of the bill's sponsors, staffers assured them the vote had been postponed. On Wednesday morning, Democratic presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders joined the bill's critics on Twitter, urging state senators to stand on the side of workers and their families, saying that the proposed measure was a threat to their livelihood. By Wednesday morning, the proposal had been removed from the committee's Thursday schedule. It is unclear when the committee will take up the bill again. Democratic State Senator Vin Gopal, who introduced the bill in March with Republican State Senator uh, Kristen Corrado, responded to critics on Twitter, including Sanders, to say that he had asked to say that he had asked for the bill to be removed from the committee schedule. Gopal added that he looked forward 
to meeting with stakeholders in the weeks and months ahead of the positives and in the, excuse me in the weeks and months ahead on the positives and negatives of both bills. So this is what happens when you um, successfully use the bully pulpit and apply public pressure. And um, this really does get right to the heart of what Bernie Sanders told me in my interview with him. Um, he said he has no problem doing an outside-inside game, and he would go to West Virginia to rally against Joe Manchin if Joe Manchin gets in the way of Medicare for All, among other priorities. And this is that theory tested in real life. This is somebody with tremendous name recognition who's running for president using his power, using his influence, using his sway to pressure state legislators to do the right thing to help working people and keep the minimum wage bill as is. Because the, there were little things that undermined rolling this out and, oh, if the unemployment rate takes up a little bit, then the minimum wage doesn't go into effect. And if this thing happens and that thing happens, then it's not as much. There all these little trap doors that the industry lobbied for to try to not have the minimum wage increase. And it was going to go through. And Bernie got involved, and activists got involved. Massive credit to every activist who was involved in this. And they were like, no, we're not going to let you do this. We're going to shine a light on it. We're going to publicly pressure you. And, of course, my favorite, my favorite thing is we're going we're gonna to threaten primaries. If you do the wrong thing here, you're going to pay for it politically. You will pay for it. And you apply enough pressure, you let them know there's basically not an option in the court of public opinion here, and they backed off. Now, can you see Elizabeth Warren using the bully pulpit in a way where she directly calls out Democratic lawmakers like this? Please. Please. There's a reason why Bernie Sanders is hated by the political establishment and why they want anybody but Bernie, because this is what Bernie does. He doesn't care that you're on Team Democrat. If you're going to do the wrong thing, he's going to call you out. And that's exactly what this is. And remember, it worked. So don't, like, defeatism is the best friend of the establishment. Because if good people just feel like, oh, we can't win, well, then the establishment goes, yeah, 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 that's right, you can't win. And then they run roughshod and do whatever they want. But if you don't take no for an answer, if you say, I don't care what the percentage is that we win or lose, I'm just going to go full bore and try to get the right policies implemented, that's the only way we win, is when we don't take no for an answer, we're incredibly, incredibly persistent, and we stare defeat in the eyes and beat it back with a stick. <laughs> we're not going to allow defeatism to get the best of us, nihilism to get the best of us. We're going to keep fighting like we have nothing to lose, and it works. So another great example of it right here. I want to see a lot more of this in the future. Next, Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson launched a pretty hilarious and uh, ironic attack on Elizabeth Warren. Let's take a look and then we'll discuss. Elizabeth Warren, above all else, 
is that on economic questions, he's a sincere populist. Warren is deeply distressed by income inequality. She profoundly distrusts Wall Street and big tech. She hates monopolies and massive multi-generational concentrations of wealth. So if you're a private equity chieftain, for example, or a weed-smoking trustafarian living off family money in Jackson Hole, you've got to be terrified of Elizabeth Warren. How could you not be terrified? Listen to her talk. Now they've got their fortunes and their money managers and their PR, and they're getting richer faster and faster and faster, and everybody else is getting left behind. The wealth tax, the two-cent wealth tax, I, God, I love that wealth tax, right? I'm not willing to give up and let a handful of monopolists dominate our economy and our democracy. It's time to fight back. Oh, it's time to fight back against the monopolists who dominate our economy. Sounds familiar? Well, actually, that's not too far from what Donald Trump ran on in 2016, back before Paul Ryan and the Ayn Rand people got a hold of his economic program. But this time around, Elizabeth Warren plans to steal that message, the Trump message, really. Warren claims that she's the radical populist here. She's the disruptor. But is she? Well, let's see. Emily Tish Sussman is a woke liberal who often appears on cable television to talk about democratic politics. Nice person. But she's the daughter of two billionaires. So you'd think that Emily Tish Sussman would hate Elizabeth Warren. But she doesn't. Instead, she demands that you support Elizabeth Warren or else you're sexist. Watch. I actually heard overheard someone saying that I thought was an interesting point, that um, basically at this point, if you are still supporting Sanders as opposed to Warren, it's kind of showing your sexism, because she has more detailed plans and her plans have evolved. I thought it was an interesting point, and I think there may be something to it. Yeah, there might be something to it. If you don't support Warren, you're a sexist. Now, keep in mind, you just saw one of the richest people on planet Earth demanding that you support Elizabeth Warren for president. Surprising, right? Well, actually, it turns out that some of Warren's most fervent supporters are the very people she claims she wants to fight. Well, that's weird. So, for example, in the third quarter of this year, Elizabeth Warren raised more money from Silicon Valley, from those monopolists she claims to hate, than anybody else running for president. Spotify's CEO is an Elizabeth Warren fan. So is Silicon Valley venture capitalist and billionaire Chris Saka. He's already maxed out to her campaign. Really, the billionaire is supporting her. Then last month, Charlie Gasparino over on Fox Business reported that Elizabeth Warren's campaign is making overtures to finance moguls on Wall Street seeking contributions. And some of them are responding. But wait a second. Why would Elizabeth Warren's enemies, and these have got to be her enemies, she attacks them all the time on the campaign trail, why would her enemies fund her campaign? We'll give you five seconds to think about it. And the answer, of course, is they're not really her enemies. They understand that Warren doesn't really mean what she says. They know that Warren's populism is a facade, and underneath it all, she's really just this season's Hillary Clinton. Faithful party robot, stalwart defender of the prerogatives of the establishment. That's what it seems like she really is. Is she? Ooh, ooh, do Trump next, do Trump next. That's why this segment got under my skin so much, is that like, this exact dynamic he's accusing Warren of being guilty of, and by the way, he's half right on that. I'll dive in more in a second. But that is the dynamic that is most pervasive and apparent about the Trump administration. And he's got nothing to say about that. 
Now, to be fair to him, he did throw one line in there, was a throwaway line, where he did kind of give like a head nod, like, okay, yeah, sure, that's true. But there's a reason why he's not extrapolating on that. So he said, um, oh, this is kind of what Trump ran on, quote, back before Paul Ryan and Ayn Rand, back, and the Ayn Rand people got a hold of him. Now, that would make an interesting segment, Tucker. Can you please dive into that one for me in detail? Tell me exactly how Donald Trump went back on his populism on the campaign trail. Tell me exactly how he's capitulated 100% to the establishment forces that dragged him to this position. By the way, it wasn't that hard, I'm sure. But when you have Gary Cohn and Steve Mnuchin and other Goldman Sachs lackeys and Larry Kudlow, who's been wrong about everything for the past three decades, when these are the people who are making your economic decisions and you're doing tax cuts for the rich and you're deregulating Wall Street, he's, he became the polar opposite of what his campaign rhetoric was on economic issues, domestic issues, on issues where he pretended to be a populist. So that deserves a hell of a lot more coverage and a hell of a lot more detail, and he doesn't give it because, unfortunately, this has, been, this has become you know, Tucker Carlson's thing in many respects, is he'll often do these populist segments, but then he always like redirects that support for his audience back to Republican politicians who are the least populist people in the entire country. We did, you know, we did the segment with Josh Hawley, Republican senator. He went on Tucker's show and sounded incredibly populist, and then I gave you Josh Hawley's record. Everything about his record is anti-populist and massively elitist. And, but Tucker laundered his image on his show for him, which is, I mean, it's intelligent in the sense that he knows the old school, you know, rugged individualism, uh, free market nonsense. He knows that that doesn't sell anymore. So he knows he's got to go in a populist direction with his rhetoric. And that's what, what makes him more of an interesting character and more appealing to, like, younger viewers. But it is, again, all facade, which is what's important here. Now, so Trump is even more guilty of this dynamic than Elizabeth Warren is. But let's talk a little bit about Warren. Does he have a point when he says, oh, my God, some billionaires are donating to her, so maybe she's not really for the thing she's saying she's for? I think that's half true. Because it is true, it's been reported on in detail, that she has been courting the Democratic establishment behind the scenes. And I think, and I'm just guessing here, but I think it's an educated guess, I think that what she's saying, <clears throat> excuse me, and no, this is not an ad, but it should be, Big Seltzer, where's my check? Cut it, bitch. I heard my voice going, which is why I had to do it. Um, anyway, uh, she has been courting the Democratic establishment behind the scenes. And... That shows that the argument she's probably making to them is, I'm not burning. Okay, I'm not burning. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not as far left as him. I'm just not. Bernie happily calls himself a democratic socialist, even though he's more of a social democrat, but still, he calls himself a democratic socialist. And Elizabeth Warren says, I'm a proud capitalist. So I think that those meetings are, I'm not as bad as you think I am, and I'm not as against you as you think I am. I think that that's what's going on in those meetings. And so she is courting them for their support. However, when he says, oh, she's just the next Hillary Clinton, don't agree with that at all. Not at all. And anybody on the left who thinks, no, she's really just the next Hillary Clinton, I don't agree with you. 
there is a 0% chance Hillary Clinton ever, ever would have done the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Ever. 0% chance. She never would have done it. You want to know why? Because the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was massively successful, and it helped working Americans who were getting screwed over by big banks. $12 billion returned to defrauded Americans. That was her brainchild, and she fought for it. You can't do a false equivalence and say, oh, the mo- one of the most corrupt Democrats in modern American history is equal to one of the better Democrats in modern American history. Now, I get it. That's a low bar. It's like saying, who's the tallest kid in kindergarten? I get it. But don't conflate the two. Don't conflate the two. And what he's doing, it's a propaganda trick. Oh, aren't they the same? So, you know, so the idea is tar her as equally as corrupt, tar her as equally as corrupt as Hillary Clinton, and tar her as as big of a sellout as Hillary Clinton. I'm sorry, I just don't think that that's true. Now, the other thing is, I think that on a lot of these issues, Warren means it. It's just that her position on it does not hurt the ultra-wealthy as much as Bernie's does. So when she has, you know, we went over her wealth tax, and we went over Bernie's wealth tax. Warren's isn't as strong and isn't as far left as Bernie's. 2% tax on net worth, over $50 million. Congratulations. Bernie's is higher than that. So I don't, I don't think she's like, what, you think she's like not for the wealth tax, but she's saying she's for the wealth tax? No, I think she actually is for the wealth tax. Now, you can call me naive, but I think her history proves pretty clearly that on issues of taxes, on issues of Wall Street regulation, and on issues of trade, she has a pretty good record on that front. So when I say he's half right, The reason I say he's half right is because I think she is reaching out to the Democratic establishment, and I think she is more friendly with the Democratic establishment than Bernie, and I think her pitch to them is, I'm all you got because if it comes down to him versus me, you know you want me. So there's he has half a point there, but I think he goes way too far when he says, oh, she's like Hillary Clinton 2.0. That totally throws all the nuance about Elizabeth Warren out the window. Um, and then the other point is the exact dynamic he's going after Warren for, I'm sorry, but Trump is the most guilty of this dynamic, and he's never done a detailed segment like this going after Trump um, on this issue. I mean, again, Donald Trump ran as a populist, ran as the anti-outsourcing guy. 93,000 jobs were outsourced in his first year as president. Um you know, wages are still stagnant to this day. Now the tax rate for the rich is effectively less than the tax rate for working people. That's another story that we reported on from about a month and a half or so ago. The first time in American history that's been the case, even during the robber baron era, it wasn't the case that we had a legit regressive tax rate. And that's what we have right now in many respects. So, you know, hey man, turn that, uh, turn those sites on Donald Trump, please, but he's not going to do it because, again, he uses this populism to then rope in the audience to support the least populist politicians in the country. Now, if Tucker wants to prove me wrong, he can, by all means, prove me wrong, man, and endorse Bernie. He's not going to do that. You know he's not going to do that. He's not because the other trick he likes to do is pretend like every single person on the left is just like a woke, outraged social justice warrior. And he likes to act like, you know, 
The entire left is so wild and crazy on social issues that they don't even know the difference between a man and a woman anymore. Like, this is the other narrative. And if he was a real populist, if he was a genuine populist, he would be like, okay, I will support the only real genuine populist in the race, Bernie Sanders, and he won't do that. And he won't do that. It's going to be interesting to see if it comes down to Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump in the general election. What argument does Tucker start making? What argument does he make? Don't get me wrong. I know he's not going to endorse Bernie Sanders. But it's going to be hard for him to maintain this, like, I'm a populist myself, task dance, when one guy has gone full elitist, that's Trump, and one guy is, like, the only serious populist in the country running for president. So, anyway, there you have it. This is what makes Tucker Carlson more dangerous and a better propagandist than all the other people on the right, is that he knows how to tap into the popular sentiment of the day and then redirect using that argument and using that energy in the country. Again, it's dangerous. It's not true. It's misleading, but it's certainly effective. A Democratic super PAC by the name of American Bridge 21st Century is releasing ads about Trump for 2020. They're going against Trump in 2020. So this is uh, originally a David Brock group founded in 2010. Let's take a look at what direction they went with their ads. My name is David Silverovich, and they also call me Sobel. I live just south of Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I love the community. I love the scenery. The one thing I really like to do most is to go up in the snowmobile water cross chancel. National championship. They race snowmobiles across water. It is amazing. They just go fast enough where they don't sink. But sometimes they do. And that's fun. Today I work for a plumbing and heating company. In 2016 I backed Trump because he wasn't a politician. And that, to me, made him look kind of like me. Or... A lot of other people that want things done in the country, but it seemed like now that he's in office, he's right in there with them being all crazy. He definitely thinks he's above the law. Maybe that's because he's a businessman. If I could go back three years, I would say just think it over a little bit harder. In 2016, I voted for President Trump, but not this time. AB Pack is responsible for the content of this ad. Mark Graham, and I lived in Erie all my life. Basically, it's a blue-collar town. It started off large manufacturing base, a lot, a lot of uh, water shipping, rum running back in the days. I voted for Donald Trump in 2016 because I thought he would make a change. Did he make a change? Not for the good. Donald Trump only plays favorites for people like himself, not Erie, Pennsylvania. The president's a bully because it's his way or no way. He doesn't understand life around here. He thinks he's the smartest person ever. I don't think people believe that. 
I don't believe Donald Trump is on the side of the American people. I think he's on his own side. If I could go back in time, I would tell myself to beware of the changes that President Trump has made. Voting for Donald Trump in 2020 would be like putting gasoline on a fire. AB Pack is responsible for the content of this ad. You know, so close but so far, these ads. It's like they're almost good, but they're just not. <laughs> so let me explain what I mean. There wasn't a single issue brought up in any of those ads. It was just dudes who were like, yeah, I voted for him, and now I don't like him. Okay, but anybody watching the ad is going to be like, and then? So what exactly, why exactly do you not like him? Willing to listen, but you got to make the point. What's the point? And, you know, this, here's the problem, guys. The problem is, like I said, this is a David Brock group, the Democratic group. They're against the Republicans. But a David Brock group is an establishment Democratic group. Establishment Democratic groups are not really in favor of left-wing change. They're just not in favor of Republicans. Now, I agree with them on the whole being against Republicans thing. That's easy. But I disagree with them on fundamental systemic change because I'm actually for it. I'm for all the actual left-wing proposals that represent the wing of the party that they're also against. So that's why you don't see them, you know, bringing up specific political issues here, because the solutions would be things that a David Brock group doesn't support, that establishment Democrats don't support. So you can't really bring up NAFTA or permanent normal trade relations with China, because the establishment Democrats were for that. So that's why maybe they don't. You know, it would have been easy for one of these people to be like, yeah, I lost my health insurance. There are plenty of people, I'm sure, who lost their health insurance in the Rust Belt under Trump. Talk to one of them. Let them say it. Hey, I had health insurance. Now I don't. Seven million Americans lost their health insurance because of Donald Trump and his executive orders against Obamacare. Seven million. That's a fact. That's from Gallup. Seven million people lost their health insurance under Obama, or under Trump, excuse me. And you're going to tell me that this is a successful presidency? How? That's nowhere near successful. Bring up an issue. I don't care. if You, you don't have to bring up two. You don't have to bring up three. In each of these ads, have somebody bring up one issue that impacted them directly in a negative way. Just, just one. That's it. And then it'd be a good ad. Like, I get what they're trying to get at here. Oh, it's okay. There were former Trump people. Now they realize this guy isn't what they thought. Uh, so, uh-huh. don't you want to be like him? If you're a former Trump voter, don't you want to be like these people? They saw the light. Do you want to see the light? But I, I don't like it when people get talked down to, and I feel like this is, they're talking down to people. Because, again, the natural question anybody would have watching this is, okay, so you switched. Why? And they don't get into why. They don't say why. You have to say why. You have to use the art of persuasion. You have to make a point. And they didn't make a point. So, but what would you expect from an establishment Democratic group? I mean, this is what you're going to get. This is as good as you're going to get it. And it's a shame, because, like, Media Matters, for example, you know, that's David Brock, you know, was involved with Media Matters, and then this is also a David Brock group. It doesn't have to totally suck. I think Media Matters, in many ways, does a great job when they just clip out stuff Fox News says, and they say, here, look at how crazy these people are. They're right in, in all that stuff, for sure. But when it comes to specifically arguing for systemic change and making a case in an election, they can't make a potent case because they're not in favor of the real reforms we need. Medicare for all, free college, living wage, ending the wars, Green New Deal, all that stuff. So they can't be as 
pointed and sharp in their criticisms as they need to be, and that's why their ads, I don't think, are as good as they could be. All right, final story of the day. Senior, ooh, wrong graphic. I gotta switch the graphic. Senior Bernie advisor Chuck Roca went on Rising with Crystal and Sagar on Hill TV, and um, they spoke about the issue of polling. This is interesting. Take a look. polls yeah. come out, external polls. I know you all have your own internal polls, but as you're looking at these external polls, like how do you think about them? How do you know what to take seriously? Because they can be sort of all over the map. The way I judge it is the, the, the establishment quo of pollsters will go talk to people who they think that will go vote. This is what the viewers need to really understand when you're dissecting a poll is pollsters are guessing. And the point is, are they guessing right? And they're guessing on who's going to show up in a Democratic primary. That's easier in South Carolina and New Hampshire because there's a lot of historical data. When you talk about a microcosm of the electorate, which is Nevada, which is Iowa, you, it's hard to get it right because you're only talking about maybe 180, that's a guess, on how many, what, four and a half million people in Iowa who will really show up. The way Barack Obama won this thing is there was a lot of people showed up that nobody intended on. That's what Bernie Sanders is counting on. If you take the establishment in every in every state of who always votes in a Democratic primary, we're doing okay. We're in the top three with everybody else. When you add in infrequent voters and new registered voters into any poll, guess who skyrockets to the top? We do. That's why this campaign is focused on bringing new people, as Bernie says, from the stump into the process. We need more people voting because when they do, Bernie Sanders does better and America will do better. That's an, an, such an important point. That's yeah. why Donald Trump beat all the polls in 2016. Nobody saw him coming. Thing. I could show yeah. you that data across Florida. It was a right. death of a thousand cuts. It was yeah. one in this little county, 2%, and that only might have meant 15 or 16 different like people. But up. over the, every yeah. county, that's, that's exactly yeah. right. There, there you I go. go. that all the time. All right, that's a really good point. And, you know, this is one of the reasons I've tried to not cover as much polling this election cycle. Sometimes I can't help myself if the poll is that is super interesting. But I tried not to cover as much as I did in 2016 for that reason, because any election that Bernie Sanders is going to win – is going to have insanely high turnout, insanely high turnout. And because when turnout goes up, that means more young people came out because the older folks typically always vote. So they're given. But when turnout goes up, that means younger people are getting out in massively high numbers. It's the word I'm looking for in droves. I think that's the word I'm looking for. And, he wins among young people by a mile and a half. His poll numbers among young people are the highest. So really, any election that Bernie Sanders would win would be legendary turnout, record high turnout. Those are the elections he's going to win. Now, that's why when you have pollsters you know, doing what they do, and they're going, oh, let's look at likely voters. Well, if you're only doing likely voters, what are you basing it off of, 2016 turnout? If you base it off a 2016 turnout, you're going to get a very skewed picture because that would mean turnout is pretty low. So that's why there's a little bit of a sleeper Bernie vote that we are 
kind of relying on in the same way, and they pointed this out, like this guy did. There was that sleeper Trump vote. People who supported Trump or were too afraid to say to the pollsters, and new voters who would come into the fray and voted for Trump, people who would have sat on the sidelines and then they came out and they voted for Trump, especially in the states that mattered for him. He targeted the proper states for the Electoral College. Um, so it's a similar dynamic that you would see with Bernie. And the best example I could give of this is 2016 Democratic primary, Michigan. I don't know if you guys remember this, but Bernie was down massively in all the polling that had been done in Michigan. It was Hillary was blowing him out of the water in Michigan. I mean, it was like, I don't remember, so I don't want to, you know, say the wrong thing, but I think it was at least, at least 20 percentage points down, Bernie Sanders was. Could have been as high as 30 percentage points down. And then he won the primary there. Why? Overwhelmingly high turnout. Staggeringly high turnout. And they went for Bernie. Young people turned out, went for Bernie, and he won. So we can do that in this election upcoming, too. But we have to do that. We have to do that. We have to turn out people everywhere. So, but that's, this is a longer way of me saying don't get too down when the polls don't reflect him not doing too well. Don't get too down. Because no matter what that number is, you have to understand that any election Bernie would win would have extremely high turnout. And the polls are not accounting for that extremely high turnout because it's atypical. By definition, it's atypical. So just know that. But don't stop fighting. Get out there, make phone calls, knock on doors, all that stuff, because it's incredibly important, and this is how we win. Okay. We are done, baby. We are done, baby. All right, guys, I love you. Everybody enjoy your weekend. Enjoy the rest of your day today. Hope it's warmer you are. It's not here. <laughs> but anyway, I'll talk to you guys later. Much love. Peace.